Good morning. We're going to continue our series of uh, misunderstood, misapplied, sometimes miscited passages. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, 1 to 6 is, I don't know if it's miscited and misapplied as much as it's divided Christianity. It may be one of those most divided passages in all of Christendom. So that's why it's in our series. Let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord to guide our time. Father God, uh, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we look at Hebrews 6, 1 to 6, and give us grace knowing that sincere, godly, learned individuals have come to slightly different interpretations of this passage. Father, we uh, desire to, with humility, exegete it to the best of our ability. And we ask, Father, that we would rightly apply it, rightly divide it, and that you would help us. Father, we pray for the 250 or so from Highland at districts. We're thankful that they were able to go. And many, several thousand that are there. We ask, Father, that as they conclude districts in Green Bay, that there would be great spiritual impact on everyone who was able to attend and traveling mercies as they come back. Father, uh, send guardian angels around each person, each bus, each vehicle. We believe by faith you can do this, and we ask that you would. And we ask that you would guide our time. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, many years ago, there was a jingle... It was a commercial, perhaps some of you remember it. It goes like this. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. I didn't know we were doing a worship team audition this morning. Oh. We're not, I'm already in. That's news to Jeff Weiss. <laughs> His boss told me that he's in. Ah. Well, weebles, if you don't know anything about it, they're little toys, they're shaped like eggs, and they go back and forth but they don't ultimately fall down. And I believe that's true of a Christ follower. I believe if you have prayed to receive Jesus Christ, if you have come to the end of yourself, if I've come to the end of myself, and we have confessed that we are sinners, an action, an attitude, a thought, a motive that is outside the will of God, and we have accepted what Jesus did on the cross, his death as the payment of our sin, his resurrection as evidence of life after the grave. If we have truly believed in Christ and the power of God's spirit begun to turn from our sin, then we are saved. But we still wobble. We're weebles. We fail. We sin. We backslide. We disappoint the Lord. But if God is holding on to us, 
He will never let us go. Let me read to you out of a few passages. The first is John 6. This is verses 39 and 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father who sent Jesus, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But it's not just things, it's us. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I believe that God will persevere in and through us, and that we who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, God will bring us home. One of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. I would illustrate it this way. I have a two-year-old grandson. His name is Roe Jeffrey. You can just skip the Roe part. His name is Jeffrey. <laughs> His middle name is also my middle name. And if Jeffrey, Roe Jeffrey and I were at an intersection about to cross it, at the very least, I would hold his hand. Now, he might hold mine, but I'm grabbing his for all of life. In fact, the truth of the matter is, if we're at an intersection, I just pick him up. And then we go across. Now, he may wiggle, he may squirm, but my grip is strong, and I will hold on to him. And that is what God the Father is promising to do with everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ. So if you have truly prayed, if you have truly believed, if you have truly received Christ, God's Spirit will persevere in us because God the Father is holding on to us. Let me read again from John 10. John 10, 27 and 28 says this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Let me illustrate it this way. In 1987, an airline, Northwest Flight 225, taking off from Detroit, crashed. 156 people perished. There was one survivor four-year-old Cecilia. Although she had some burns on her and she was discovered outside the plane, it became clear that she was on the plane. When they first found her, they thought, well, maybe she was in a car that was hit by debris and that's why she's slightly injured. But when they checked the list, no, she was on the registry. She was on that plane. How did 156 people perish and a four-year-old survive? Well, after some investigation, they came to the conclusion that her mother, Paula, as the plane was descending, took off her seatbelt and wrapped her body around her daughter. And although everyone perished, including the mother, this child survived. Why? Because of the mother's love, the mother's protection, the mother holding on to a child. And I believe that that's exactly what God does in our lives 
if we know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, it is God that is persevering through his spirit in our lives and he will bring us to completion. Now, if I didn't believe that and I had a view that salvation could be lost, that is not my view, then the passage that I would look at today is the one that I would cite. I think the strongest passage for those who do not believe in eternal security, who do not believe that it is God holding on to us, but us holding on to God, is this passage. And so I'd like to read it, and we're going to work through it with grace today. The passage is Hebrews chapter 6. I want to read verses 1 to 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now these are the very hard verses, four to six. For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then having fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Again, if I believe that you could lose your salvation, this is the passage I would look at. And I haven't got a clue what to do with it. It's your turn, Sam. <laughs> Don't worry. Once we get to the hard, harder three verses, I'll pass the baton right back. So I'm going to start with the first three verses and make sure that we're on the same page in understanding what the author of Hebrews is saying. Maybe you've heard this before. Anytime we see a therefore in Scripture, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And at 6 verse 1, our passage started with a therefore. So we have to understand the context. I'll summarize it. The author of Hebrews in chapter 5 is saying uh, to his audience, you're not as spiritually mature as you should be. He uses the analogy of an infant maybe having infant formula as their diet, and at some point needs to graduate to solid food. Spiritually, the author of Hebrews is saying to his audience, you're still on spiritual infant formula, but at this point, you should be eating solid food. At this point, you should be teachers of God's word, but you're not. You're not progressing spiritually fast enough, and it's almost as if he chides his audience. It's time to move on to deeper things. Now, he doesn't say that we have to move past them or remove them. In, in other words, we have to build on top of that foundation of theological truth, of gospel truth. As one Reformational theologian notes, verses 1 and 2 highlight a catechism of the early church. Catechism just means a, a succinct, a simple statement of belief. And in those first two verses, he outlines that foundation, those foundational truths. And there are three pairs. The first pair talks about our salvation. The second pair talks about our sanctification. The third pair talks about our glorification. It says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. 
Those are two words we use often to describe salvation, faith and repentance. Repentance, empowered by God's Spirit, turning away from our old way of life. It's an attitude, not an action, turning toward God. And faith, believing that when Jesus died and rose again, He paid the penalty for our sin. That's when we're saved, that salvation. Then the next pair, instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. Washings, it could refer to baptism. It could also refer to ritual Jewish washings. And the laying on of hands, that was a symbolic moment after a young believer's baptism when older, more seasoned believers, they'd place their hands on this younger believer as a picture of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. Together, washings, laying on of hands, that's a reminder of our sanctification. It's a big word for growing to be more like Jesus. And our sanctification sometimes looks like two steps forward and one step back, but it's that long-term, gradual, over time, growing to look more like Christ, our sanctification. And then finally, our glorification, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Resurrection, If you know Christ, then we are waiting for the day when Jesus returns in glory, when we receive glorified bodies, when we reign with Jesus forever. And then eternal judgment for all, when believers will be judged at the Bema seat, receive rewards for what we've done in our Christian life, and when unbelievers will receive the judgment of eternity separated from God forever in hell. Judgment awaits all of us. Salvation sanctification, glorification, together, this formed a a simple, succinct statement of belief for the early church. That is the spiritual milk that the author of Hebrews is talking about. But once we learn the basics, once we understand the basics, we build on that foundation with deeper theological truths. And verse 3 says, this we will do if the Lord permits. It's an incredible reminder for you, for me, that our growth in the Lord, our sanctification, It's ultimately not something that I or you can take credit for. That's the Lord working in and through us, growing us to look more like Christ. We're not passive in our sanctification, but when we participate in things like the spiritual disciplines and we open ourselves up for the Holy Spirit to do that work inside of us. But what happened for the author of Hebrews' audience, they assumed that, well, I know the basics. I have that catechism memorized. (coughs) I get salvation, sanctification, glorification, so I'm good. And they would return to their old lifestyle, maybe their old Jewish lifestyle, their old Gentile lifestyle. They would go back to living like the way they used to live and think, well, just I understand the basics. I have the catechism memorized, so I'm good to go. And that's the context that brings us into verses 4 through 6. Just knowing the basics or even experiencing the joy of Christian community, that does not equal salvation. Well, like I said, I took the three easier verses in our passage, and now Dr. Jeff Hines gets to exegete four of the, or three of the hardest verses in the whole New Testament. So here's the baton. (laughs) Thank you. As you and I continue in verses four, five, and six, we see an individual or individuals, it's in the plural, that have a great deal of light, and clearly they are not saved. They have not fallen into repentance. They have fallen away. It says they cannot be restored back to repentance. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, if I were to believe that one could lose one's salvation, this would be the passage that I would turn to. 
But I don't believe that. In fact, I don't believe the author of Hebrews believes that. In chapter 13, verse 5, he will say that God will never leave nor forsake his children. So how can we have chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, fall in line with chapter 13, verse 5, that says God never leaves us, never forsakes us, if we belong to the Lord? Well, the first thing that I would want us to notice is the pronouns. The pronouns absolutely matter. When you're looking at the text, you must, must understand the pronouns. In the first three verses, in fact, almost the entire book, it is first and second. It is I, we, you, and y'all. The book is written to Christians. The entire book is written to the church. It's written to Christians in the church that should be more mature in Christ, but have not yet built upon the foundation. They know just the basics. They're living just the basics. They're not living for the Lord. And throughout the book, the pronouns are first and second person. I, we, first person, singular and plural, you and y'all. That is singular and plural. But suddenly, when we get to verses four to six, notice that the pronouns change. It is now those, them. We've switched audiences. The entire book is written to Christians. The entire book is written to church Christians who should be more mature. And suddenly the pronouns switch. So whatever you do with the text, you must come to grips with the fact that he switches program, pronouns. Look at verse nine, he switches back again. Let me read verse nine. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So when he addresses the we, y'all, he said, I'm sure of your salvation. When he addresses them, those, he says, you're not coming back to repentance at all. Very different audiences. Don't miss the pronouns. It's huge. Now, what does he say? What does verses four, five, and six actually mean? Well, let's go through them. Starting in verse four, the those them crowd have been once enlightened. What exactly does that mean? Well, according to the Beshetta, Syriac translation, Beshetta just means the common translation in the Syriac, Syrian language, they actually define the phrase, once enlightened, as baptism. You say, really? Well, that's a 5th century, B, or 5th century AD, but we actually get this phrase defined in the New Testament church all the way to the beginning of the 2nd century. This phrase, having been once enlightened, means to be baptized. Now, if you come tomorrow night, uh, we're going to baptize about 17 people, and they're giving me the message portion. I think they told me I have five to seven minutes. Ha! Once you give me the microphone, I'm in control. But they tell me I have five to seven minutes, and you're going to hear me say that faith 
Acceptance of Christ precedes baptism. And that's true. That's the New Testament model. But we got to remember the audience to which the author is writing. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, we have a baptism unlike the baptism of believers, right? We have this guy named John the Baptist. Jesus has not yet died. He has not yet been crucified. He has not yet resurrected. It's a cousin. He's the forebearer of Christ. And he baptizes people into repentance. It's not a baptism that follows faith. It's a baptism of Jews. And according to Mark 1, 5, the entire Judean countryside goes down to where John is. Judea at this point has over a million people. So if only a third of the people go down, he and his disciples baptized 300,000 Jews. But it actually says the entire Judean countryside. So it's probably more than 300,000. We have people all over the place who have been baptized in repentance. But it's not the baptism that follows saving faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's what's going on here. But even if it isn't, baptism has never saved. How many of us know individuals who have been baptized and yet do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ? How many of us here were baptized prior to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? That would be me. My parents came to Christ about the day I was born and they had me baptized. And then later, as a believer, I was baptized again. And so baptism never saves. The phrase refers to baptism. So I think we can remove the first phrase as guaranteeing salvation. It does. Baptism has never, will never save anyone. The second phrase describing the those them crowd in verse four is they've tasted of the heavenly gift. Actually, there's no debate as to what that is. It's communion. Now we know that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, that before taking communion, we are to examine himself. Let a man examine himself, lest he eat judgment upon himself eating the bread or drinking the cup in an unworthy fashion. We give this warning all the time. You need to know Christ. You need to be confessed up with Christ or allow the elements to pass by. But how many churches don't give that warning? How many individuals who do not know Christ have participated in communion? Probably untold millions in our day and probably thousands in the day in which the Hebrew writer is writing. Many have had communion without knowing Christ, right? And communion never saves. The third description in verse four of the those them crowd is a little more serious. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. That word shared is matakas. Now you're going to have to take what I say at, uh, well, you're going to have to trust me or not. 
Matakas has two meanings in the New Testament. It means to consume or it means to just be around. By the way, this exact word is used by this author in chapter 12, verse 8. Now, you always want to see how an author uses the word because that clues us in. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, this word is used of a poser, a fake, a chameleon, someone who claims to be a son of God, but is in fact not. That's actually how it's used in chapter 12, verse 8. So it stands to reason that that might be how it's used here. It's not somebody who has actually ingested the Holy Spirit, but somebody who's been around the Holy Spirit, who's been around Bible teaching, gospel ingesting individuals, people who have accepted Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit living within them. So they've shared in the Holy Spirit and that they've been around believers in Christ. I think this is exactly what Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, where when Jesus returns, people say, Lord, Lord. And you remember what Jesus says? Depart from me. I used to know you. It's not what he says. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. May that not be said of any of us. You see, Matthew 7 tells us that when Jesus returns, there are going to be people, probably church people, maybe leaders in the church, maybe pastors, maybe elders, maybe deacons, maybe committed individuals to the church who have never truly prayed to receive Jesus Christ. And they're going to see Jesus and they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Don't let that be said of anyone here today. Fall upon Jesus. Believe that you, I, we are sinners in need of a Savior. Confess, agree with God, and by faith accept Jesus Christ, his death as the payment of one's sin. And begin to turn, repent, empowered by God's Spirit, become a child of the Lord. Share to the Holy Spirit, it easily can mean those who are around it. In fact, that's exactly what the fourth category in verse five means. It refers to the those them crowd who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. What does that mean? It means individuals who have heard biblical sermons, who have read biblical books, who have heard the teachings. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Now, if you're here and you are not a believer, I am so thankful that you're coming, that you're tasting of the word of God. Keep tasting, and I'm praying that someday you will, by faith, believe in Jesus, but you're always welcome. Keep coming. But just hearing the word of God is not enough. We need to come to a point of faith in Christ, believe in Christ, receive him as our personal savior. The those them crowd, they heard the teachings. 
They heard them well. But they didn't believe in Jesus. Finally, the those them crowd have tasted in the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? They've seen God do the miraculous. What might that look like? And maybe it's a couple. Their marriage has been on the rocks. It's really in really bad straits. And yet they're hanging on and they're praying and they're working at it and they're getting biblical counseling and they're having a mentor in their life. And over time, what was rocky has been rebuilt. They've seen the miraculous. Or maybe they have seen an individual very far from God, foul in language, very crude in lifestyle. And they've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And transformation doesn't just happen. It's slowly, incrementally. It's that process of sanctification. And they've seen it. They've witnessed it. They've seen the miraculous God transforming somebody. They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. The those then crowd, they could have been around all of it. They could have been baptized. They could have had communion. They could have been around the workings of the Spirit of God. They could have seen the miracles and yet not been transformed. There is clearly a change in pronouns between verses 1 and 3, and then 4 to 6, the they, those crowd, and then again, verse 9, he goes back. Therefore we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I'm going to illustrate it in the Old Testament, and then Sam will illustrate it in the New. Think with me of the Jews in Egypt. The Jews in Egypt saw the miraculous. They saw God work in a powerful way. God raises up Moses and his brother Aaron. And then they go to Pharaoh. And on behalf of God, they say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And they unleash a number of plagues with the final plague being the angel of death. The firstborn of every Egyptian family is taken. And finally, Pharaoh sends them out. He'll change his mind, you remember. And God leads his people, a pillar of fire by night, a cloud in the day, all the way to Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. And then the Egyptians come after them. And God separates the waters, and they walk on dry land. The Egyptians follow, and the waters come and bury them. And then God feeds his people. He gives them quail. He gives them manna. He gives them water from Mare, the rock that, that brings water for a million Jews and all of their flocks. They have seen the power of God. They have seen the teachings and heard the teachings of Moses and Aaron. And yet, they ignore it. They see what God does through Joshua. And yet, you remember, there's 40 years of wandering and only Joshua and Caleb of the adults will go into the promised land. Why? Because they ignore God. They are hard of heart. They are a stiff-necked people. 
many, maybe most of that generation, we will not see in heaven. They didn't look forward to a redeemer. God had done the miraculous. They had been enlightened. They had tasted. They had shared. And they did not believe. And we will not see them in heaven. Well, that's an Old Testament example. Sam's going to give us a New Testament. We don't have to look very far to find maybe the clearest example of Hebrews 6 in the New Testament. You might know where I'm going. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus for just 30 pieces of silver. When we read the gospel accounts, we know how the story ends. But put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. While they were doing ministry with Jesus for those three years, did they know what was about to come? Did, did they see through Judas? Well, consider the conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples in the upper room. The day before he went to the cross, John 13, starting in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples, they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? I would imagine that if the disciples had any inkling that the betrayer was Judas, the moment that Jesus asked, who's going to betray me? They would have all looked at Judas. But what did they do? They looked in the mirror. They said, Lord, it's not me, is it? They had no idea. Or how about Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And then the end of verse 4 says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. See, Jesus, he sent out his disciples on a mission trip. Judas would have been one of them. What would have happened if Judas would have tried to perform a miracle, for example, and didn't work? His disciples... The rest of the disciples probably would have been a little bit suspicious, but they weren't. So even if Judas didn't do a miracle, he was certainly an expert at being a chameleon. He was an expert at blending in and looking the part. Does Hebrews 6 fit for Judas? Absolutely. Did Judas taste the heavenly gift? Absolutely. He tasted the five loaves and two fish that Jesus multiplied to feed 5,000. Did he share in the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. He was associated with greatest work of the Spirit, Spirit throughout history to that point. He probably even witnessed Jesus' baptism when the Spirit descended <coughs> on Jesus as a dove, in the form of a dove. Did he taste the goodness of the Word of God? Absolutely. He heard sermons from the Word of God, Jesus. Did he see the powers of the age to come? Absolutely. He saw Lazarus walk out of the tomb. He saw Jesus walk on water and calm the storm. Yet through his ultimate denial and betrayal of Jesus, Judas revealed that he'd never had that saving relationship with Christ in the first place. He's Hebrews 6. Now, this passage in Hebrews 6 
not only is it one of the most challenging texts in the New Testament to interpret, it's also one of the most challenging texts in the New Testament to apply. And as we think about what this means for our church family at Highland today, a couple things come to mind. And we want to speak out of what might sound like two sides of our mouth, because there are are two what might appear to be contradictory fears. I'll share the first. I'm afraid of inflicting unnecessary doubt in the heart of a genuine believer. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've placed your faith in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. You've turned away from your sin. Over time, the Spirit has empowered that gradual transformation in your life. You know that you're saved. But the enemy has fired those arrows of doubt. Maybe you've asked questions like, have I committed the unpardonable sin and I can't be saved? Or did I lose my opportunity to be saved? Or did I commit that sin just one too many times and my salvation's been taken away? We don't want to sow unnecessary doubt in the life of a genuine believer. And if you're here today asking the question, have I committed the unpardonable sin? We are convinced, we're utterly convinced the answer to that question is no, as you're demonstrating a softness of your heart that is impossible when we think of a man like Judas. Jeff. I'm going to add to that for a moment before I get to my point, and that is that we are really bad fruit inspectors in the lives of others. We're not even very good at our own fruit inspection. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? So we have to ask God to help us to inspect our own fruit. But I can imagine that it would be very easy for us to try and inspect the fruit for somebody else. We're not really good at that. We don't know what goes on in someone's heart. We don't know what kind of transformation has occurred. So Resist that temptation. On the other hand, we are afraid that some could be not a believer, that some here could be in that Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, and Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. I'll just use the phrase chameleon Christian someone who blends in, someone who may even be self-deluded. You may know the name Charles Templeton. If you know Charles Templeton, you know that he founded Youth for Christ International. And from 1944 to 1946, for three years in Toronto, for 150 weeks, every Saturday night, he preached old-fashioned gospel come to Christ messages for late teens and 20s, almost up to 3,000 teens every single week. And then when he got to 1948, Charles Templeton decided he wasn't really sure that God existed. He wasn't sure of the truthfulness of Scripture. He wasn't sure of the gospel. By the time we get to 1954, He declared that he was agnostic, he had no idea, and he was probably atheistic. Here's a man who was baptized. 
Here's a man who had communion and served communion. Here's a man who saw people's lives transformed even through the preaching of the gospel from his own lips. He's a man who saw lives changed by the gospel. And yet, he denied Christ. Now, Christendom is divided. Some sincere, godly, learned individuals would say that Charles Templeton lost his salvation. I think the preponderance of Scripture denies that as a possibility. I think he didn't know Christ. The author who speaks most firmly about our security in Christ is John. And probably the strongest book of the Bible about our security is 1 John. And let me read something that John wrote in 1 John 2.19. And remember, John is the last apostle to live. John has seen people martyred for their faith. He's also seen people turn away. He has seen the church divided. He has seen people that have been ripped to shreds because of their faith and others that would not die but denied Christ. And so he has all of that as God is leading him to write this book. And in 1 John 2.19, he says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. When someone goes out, and that means completely out. I had someone say to me this morning, I was 19, I walked away from the Lord and I didn't walk back towards the Lord for, for 20 years. I don't think that brother lost his salvation. I think he's wandering in his faith and God brought him back. God is persevering in him and brought him back. But if he had never returned, I would say he never belonged. Those who went out from us and did not come back were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. Again, we're very bad fruit inspectors in the lives of others. But I plead with us today, inspect the fruit. If there's no change, no transformation, whether we profess faith 30 years ago, we've had communion, we've been baptized, We've listened to messages, no fruit. We have every reason to doubt our salvation, not somebody else's. We have every reason to doubt our salvation. Embrace Christ today. As we think about Hebrews 6, there's a chance that it causes grief or pain as we think about the life of someone that we love. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a child, a grandchild who made that profession of faith. Maybe they got baptized, they're part of a church. Maybe you taught them in one way club or Generation 180 and since have walked away from their faith, now claiming not to have a relationship with the Lord. Hebrews 6 says, it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who've fallen away. 
What do we do with that? Well, we have a couple of thoughts. First, we believe that the sin in view in Hebrews 6 is incredibly rare. Let me prove it to you. Think of James, Jesus' half-brother. He was a vocal opponent of Jesus for years. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, he converted, followed Jesus. He became a pillar of the early church. Think of Paul, Saul, an opponent of Jesus, persecutor of the church, complicit with murder. Jesus gets a hold of his life on the road to Damascus, becomes a pillar of the early church. Think of the prodigal son, parable that Jesus tells. Now, those examples are not excuses for us to go on in sin, but a reminder of the grace, the unstoppable, faithful, loyal love of God. Second, as Jeff just mentioned, we're really bad fruit inspectors. We don't always or often know what's going on in someone else's heart. Even if it appears like they've walked away, we don't know the softness inside, so don't give up hope. And finally, I think of Jesus' words in Mark 10. He's talking to his disciples after his encounter with the rich young ruler and says this, "'Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God.' And they were exceedingly astonished. They said to him, "'Then who can be saved?' But Jesus looked at them and said, "'With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God.'" So even from human, our human perspective, there's someone that we know and love, that repentance feels impossible, we pray. Because you and I don't do the saving, the Lord does. Because what might seem impossible from our standpoint is not impossible with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you know that this is not an easy text both to understand and apply. We have two very specific requests for our church family here online this morning, that if there's anyone that has not yet placed their faith in Christ, that's been a chameleon Christian, may your spirit do a convicting work in their hearts, draw them to you, may they place their faith in Christ. If there are others who are dealing or have dealt with doubt, in their salvation, though they're genuinely saved. May you provide the assurance of their adoption into your family. And for those in our life that might not be walking with you, Father, we, we give those family members and friends, children, grandchildren to you. And may you do a work in their heart and draw them to you. Because, Father, we know that nothing, nothing is impossible for you. Thank you for our time together uh, in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.